I sort of can't believe it, but it's been five years since we put out our first episode with Dwayne Michaels in 2016. It's been a pretty incredible ride so far, and to commemorate our anniversary, we've been up to something for the past year that I'm super excited about announcing. We've decided to start a new imprint, and this fall we'll be publishing our first two books under Magic Hour Press. A photo book by former guest Ian Lewandowski called The Ice Palace Is Gone has been in the works, as well as another by Linda Rosenkrantz, Peter Hujar's Day, a truly remarkable conversation that she had with Hujar in 1974. Both books have had pretty amazing genesis, with incredible people involved in both who I've had the pleasure of working with. Josh Lawson and Rissa Hotchberger on The Ice Palace, and Francis Schichtel and Stephen Koch on The Hujar Book, not to mention, of course, Ian and Linda. Anyway, lots more to come about them both in the coming months. For now, head over to our newly redesigned website at magichourphoto.org to check out the books, pre-order one if you can, or just poke around and listen to an old interview. More importantly, thank you for listening all this time. Your support for the show and feedback over the years has meant the world. Books are coming and so are new interviews, so stay tuned for more. I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to Magic Hour. Billy Sullivan is my guest on the show today. It was a book of photos and paintings of his called Still Looking, published by Edition Patrick Frey, that my friend Anthony showed me that really piqued my interest. As I flipped through it, made up of work spanning over 50 years, I couldn't believe just how good he was at both, as a painter and as a photographer. While he always considered his photos to be raw material for his painting, they truly exhibit superior qualities of pure seeing. And all the people in them, everyone from his late husband, the curator Klaus Cortez, to Hilton Alls, Cookie Mueller to his muses Christian and Ed, his work is both a portrait of his life and of downtown New York over the past five decades. We got together at his loft on the Bowery, where he's been living for over 40 years. I saw photos of his tacked on the wall and pastels and paintings of flowers for a show which is up now at Medu Conservancy. It was a rainy afternoon and it was coming down pretty hard in the skylights, so do forgive the ambient sounds. We started talking about how he first started making photos. You know, I first started hanging out at the factory and we, when you hung around with people from the factory, you either recorded each other all the time, you would tape when you had a phone call with somebody, and you would take Polaroids when you could and you would carry little Olympic cameras around to take pictures at night. And that would be my diary. And I would use that information to make my work from when I was out at night. And that, that's how all that stuff came together. Mm. So if I went to a fashion show and I got friendly with the people in fashion, then I got to hang around with them and take pictures and then go home and make drawings or paintings or whatever it was. Cookie Mueller called me a diarist. She was the first person that ever gave me that name. Mm -hmm. That word stuck with me. I mean, it was like, oh, that's what I am. Uh (laughs) (laughs) This is what it is. This is why I go out every night. What did she mean when she said that? Was she referring to the fact that you were just always taking pictures? She was talking about a show that I had. She called me a a diarist. I see. You guys were friends. Yeah. You have several pictures of her that yeah. I mean that I've seen. I'm sure yeah, we, we were friends. Dr. Mueller was great. Yeah. You know. 
you know, you'd go there and you'd you'd you'd, you'd kind of go there and she'd be putting what she was going to wear that she'd be sewing it together. Really? And, yeah, and doing all this stuff. It's just to backtrack for a second. You were just talking about hanging out at the factory. How did that all start? The back room of Matt's is at that at that time was it was crazy because anybody who came into town had to get into Max's and go in the back room. So one night Jane Fonda would be there. Um, Andrea used to go by the name Andrea Whips Boho and she would, and she'd do a showtime. So there'd be showtime in the back room of Max's where she and Geraldine Smith or whoever else would start making a ruckus. And one night she wound up on Jane Fonda's lap. You know, that was a time you didn't go to discos, you went to Max's. And after that, you went to discos. Mm-hmm. Arthur was a discotheque. Okay. Early on, it was like the discotheque. Okay. And then he opened the scene East, and that's where I met my f- wife, my first wife. And that's how I got two children. <laughs> and we had a, and we had this fabulous, crazy marriage, and we got a... We got a house on the Upper West Side. It was all fun, and this, and she worked sort of. She worked a bit at Interview, and um, huh. and every, and everything sort of revolved around what was going on at the factory. And uh, I would be in my studio on Eighty Seventh Street, and you know Bridget Berlin would come by. They they filmed one scene from Chelsea Girls in our house. You know, it was wow. like that. You know, but that's just who was around. That's how things happen. Yeah. It's like a joke. Was photography ever like the thing for you or it was always as a means? Well, what I found out later on was that uh, it was my (laughs) sketchbook. I didn't know it was my sketchbook. Mm -hmm. But then eventually somebody said, oh, we want to do something with you about and we want it to be your sketchbook. And I said, "Okay." And I pulled out drawings. They said, no, we want to look at your photographs. And this is when people made CD-ROMs. So they made these huge <laughs> CD-ROMs with all these images uh-huh. of, of, you know, my, what I was doing. Um, then I went back and looked at some images that I didn't really think were photographs when I took them and I made paintings of them. So then it, then it comes to the point that the, the problem with the way people deal with this photography now you know with the iphone is they delete things when they don't like them mm-hmm. and I, you know and we learned at the when i was around the factory that you, you you know you don't delete your polaroids you don't rip your polaroids up you you keep them yeah and, you know it's you archive things yeah. so what were you always doing with the photos you would um you, you, would you bring them in you'd shoot a roll you'd bring them to the drugstore or there are thousands and thousands of slides here always slides yeah, I Color shot. Slides. Oh, I only shot slides so I could project them and make drawings and paintings. Right. The Jackie image is from it from a slide. Yeah. A, a slide. Jackie and Rita read, and Andrea came over one night to Eighty Seventh Street, and we had a dinner, and we started playing around in my studio. Mm-hmm. You know, normal stuff. Yeah. When you paint from a photo, there is this is the thing that I'm so curious about. There's a translation. The images are kind of one-to-one. It's like the content is the same, but it's not. It's like there's, there's this formal transformation. I'm thinking about the image I'm looking at, and my mind is going to when I was there. I mean, so it, it, it plays these two things. And it also is good for my memory because 
it brings me back to that time somehow. And then if it's re- if it's really good, I'll just go in there and it's happening. You mm-hmm. know, it's like this translating. It brings you t- to what you remember about what was going on. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's it's personal because lots of times I'm just bouncing around. I mean, I take lots of images. I don't, you know. Yeah. What's the pleasure in the tra- in from going from photo to painting? The photograph was never enough for me. And I was embarrassed. Oh, this is what you were asking. I never thought my photographs were photographs before. Mm. I mean, I didn't think my photographs were like a Peter U jar. Or, and I didn't want to make a Robert Mablethorpe. Mm-hmm. You know, my photographs was just me going around and archiving what I was doing. Or And I didn't know I was archiving. I was just, you know, right. but that's didacting th- or, or whatever word you want to use for it. It goes back to what... You know, what I thought the factory was about was just turning it into something. Right. But it's so interesting that you say that because when I look at the photos, it's like the, you know, your color is always interesting. The way you put together a photo is always interesting. It's like they're, 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 they're totally photos. So that, and I think that's why that's, that, that's where the curiosity comes from. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah, they are, and I get that they're photos now. Yeah, I would always think, oh, it's a little off. But then, you know, I eventually learned that that was okay. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Billy Sullivan that we recorded in New York. To find out more about the show and our new books coming this fall by Linda Rosencrantz and Ian Lewandowski, visit our brand new website at magichourphoto.org. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm looking at this painting on the wall, the one that you were just talking about of Klaus in the Yucatan, and um, that's that was that's my husband Klaus, and we're in the uh, in some place in the Yucatan, and uh, he's in bed, you know, under the the netting, and there's a still life in the foreground with books. It seems like such a quintessential, like it has these quintessential qualities that. Uh, you always see in a painting of yours, which is like this, um, this almost uh, bleached quality with these incredible pops of color. And in this one, it's particularly striking because the color is so, the, the, the vibrance of the color is so centered in the bottom right. And then, the, it's, and then there's that bleached out white again. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. I do that. And I didn't understand what I was doing, whether that was from like, 
an overflash or whatever the thing was, but it was about under, it's about how light moves through things and how I see light. When I light used to move through a projector, or now it moves through that whatever they call those machines now you use, you know, the, the digital one. Yeah. The digital projector. Right. I used to like putting a carousel and twirling the images around and picking it that way. Yeah. Instead of doing it through a computer. Yeah, it's much, yeah. much nicer. <laughs> well, it's just the way I grew up. Yeah. That's, that's the way it was then. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I grew up in Sunset Park and then, and then Borough Park. And what did your parents do? My my father worked on Wall Street. My mother my mother worked for uh, Wilson and Company. She had, she was a telephone operator. They had telephone operators and companies uh-huh. when I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. Was there? Did you feel there was a like culture in your house? Art, painting. I had an uncle that my mother would always pay attention to my uncle George, who was like very strict and, um, and I always felt really uncomfortable because I always sort of knew he was gay and I was uncomfortable, uncomfortable with that when I was a kid. You were. Because I was queer. Yeah. <laughs> I was a homo, but I wasn't, you know, Yeah. I mean, everyone knew but Billy, you know, right. <laughs> or I just, you know, it was hard for me yeah. to express. And so he was the one like, you know, if she wanted how she wanted her furniture or anything, he would help her do it. Then I wound up, you know, then I took over. Yeah. And so he he sort of pulled it together. And then so there were other gay family people that I saw as I was a kid. But you didn't talk about it. Uh, what you you didn't ask me about the sexuality. You asked me. No, I'm curious about that too. But they asked. But they were very supportive. They had an issue when you know when I was studying art, and uh, they wanted to know what they could tell people I was doing because mm-hmm. it didn't seem to make sense to them because. <laughs> Uh, you know, what do we tell people, you know, you're studying painting. And, uh, and, and so I said, oh, we could say I'm studying advertising, you know, or something. Mm-hmm. But, but then they, you know, they paid for me to go to school to become a painter. So privately supportive, but they just want, they needed something. They needed to, to be able to tell people what Billy, what is Billy doing? Billy was a difficult child. He was dyslexic. He was he he was really smart and he he moved around too much and he said the wrong thing at the wrong time all the time. Yeah. And um, so they had to learn how to deal with that. (laughs) And um, and, you know, and so then I I went from a Catholic grammar school. And I was supposed to go to a Catholic high school and I got into and then I was I was also seeing um, a doctor for asthma uptown who t- who told my mother to have me take a test. They were building a new art high school on 57th Street and 2nd Avenue. Mm-hmm. And so I took the test and I got in that high school and then, you know, my life changed. I mm-hmm. started to read and, I you know, I understood what was going on and mm-hmm. I found people like myself. It was kind of nice. You were always drawing, though? Yeah, I was, you know, I was always dreaming. Uh-huh. <laughs> I I think it was yeah dreaming, drawing and um. I mean 
when I was in the Catholic grammar school, there were 60 kids in the class. I mean, it was like really dumb. I mean, mm-hmm. but, uh, and, um, what was the dream? No, dreaming, you know, like out to lunch yeah. in, in the room. Right. I wasn't right. paying attention. That's what, no, no dreams. No, just out. I read somewhere that, um, was it eight and a half or Dolce Vita that you saw? That was like a big, a big turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was like, I was still like I was 12 or something. And I saw a bit of rice and then I saw uh, eight and a half or something. And you weren't supposed to see it because if you were Catholic, it was it was on the, the no movie list. And and I went to see this movie and. Uh, and there's this, these beautiful party scenes where you see like people, men dancing with men, men and women dancing and. It mm-hmm. just does like, oh my God, there's a place in the world where I belong. Hmm. And then I and then I went to art and design and, and that was really apparent there. Because there there would be, you know, boys in that high school that would wear their V-necks backwards and <laughs> there would be and there would be Angora and bright electric colors and they would have their hair really high because people had teased hair. And they'd put on makeup and you'd make fun of them, but you knew you were one of them, but you weren't, you know, it was like, it was, it was weird. Yeah. It wasn't weird. It's just the way it was. Yeah. Um, being a homosexual was such a hard thing to be when I was growing up and being gay. I have a gay son and it's a whole different world. Yeah. For him. But he also didn't tell me he was gay until he was 21. Yeah. Well, I only came out when I was 24. So, I mean, even I, I, I mean, I think that I was pr- probably on the the spectrum of later bloomers today, but it's still... But that's repression. Yeah. That's all repression. Yeah, totally. No, he just kept it as... His mother would call me and say, you know, did Sam talk to you? I said, how what? And, you know, and then one day he told me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so it, it's total, it's all repression. But I, I think what I was saying is that it's still, I mean, I could imagine what it was like when you were a kid. It's still, I mean, it's a different world today, but it's still, it's still the struggle. It's, there's still this, like, I don't know. Well, this, I had a really hard time w- with them, they, and there in the last couple of years of yeah. teaching where I was supposed to really pay attention to that. And I, and I couldn't associate what I was looking at with the gender that they wanted to be called. I mean, I had a really t- hard time. I understand it now, but it took me a long time t- just to come to terms with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the language that I grew up with that we would call each other is, you know, it's, it's, it's you can't use those terms anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Even we you know when you were describing before when you you know talked about being, you know, you were a little queer or something. I was thinking to myself, I wanted to ask you when you use that word today, it has a pot of, a positive connotation, yeah. but when you were a kid, it was a total negative thing, right? Oh, it was negative. Yeah, it was yeah, it was it like was a limp wrist. Yeah, limp wrist queer is like bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and I mean and, and you weren't al- you weren't allowed to experience that part of yourself or or show that part to anyone. Uh-huh. So what was it that made you, like, that put you over the the hump, so to speak? <laughs> no pun intended. Well, maybe, put me over the hump. Well, maybe, maybe the fact that uh, when my f- 
marriage fell apart and I started living with Klaus and he was coming to terms with the fact that he was gay mm-hmm. and I had to sort of figure out that I wanted to be with him. Mm-hmm. I was hiding with this bisexual term for a long time. Yeah. I How long? Well, I used it even when I was going to Arthur, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I was, but I always liked boys more than any, you know, yeah. men, yeah. And, you know, and I love Dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's like that. Well, <laughs> How old was Klaus at the time? Well, Klaus was seven years older than me. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it was a big deal for him because he had this hot gallery at that time. Right. And he wanted to give all that up and become a fiction writer mm-hmm. and deal with his sexuality. You know, and people weren't having such an easy time with the fact he had major artists that were going to make millions and millions of dollars. And he didn't care about that anymore. Yeah. He he decided that this is who he was. And I got to be part of it. Yeah. There are um, there are certain in that Patrick Fry book, Patrick Fry or Patrick Frey, Frey. Patrick Frey. There's certain reoccurring figures. Oh, muses. Muses. Christian. Who's Christian? Christian Larson. He's now a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And Louis another one. Louis, I know Louis since Louis was a kid. Yeah. Louis Chabon. And, he, and so he was one of my people who connected me to fashion. Uh-huh. When I first met him, he was Rene Ricard's young boyfriend. Uh-huh. And then we remained friends. And so I've been photographing and painting him. I mean, he's stunning also. Huh? Yeah, stunning also. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he's like this big man now. Yeah. He's like this big, huge man. <laughs> but I still, you know, he's, he's still attracted. And, you know, and I met Christian at the YMCA on 63rd Street. And we got to, we were, you know... We, we sort of got friendly and he asked me, asked me who, what I did. And I asked him what he did. And he said, Oh, he worked at MoMA. So then I said, Oh, I have a painting there. And he mm-hmm. looked it up and then, you know, and then we started, you know, he, he'd come over and we'd spend this time together. And he had a, he had a boyfriend, then a husband and I had a husband. Yeah. And, you know, and so, that was studio time. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, you know, and he was just exploring who he was and I got to be part of it. Yeah. And so you would photograph him? You, yeah. Yeah. Tons of them. Yeah. You would, yeah. Fo- yeah. Huh. And have a good time. You know, it would yeah. just be. Yeah. But that, and then there's also that guy, Ed, the first guy that Ricky Clifton sent me was, uh-huh. his name was Ed O'Toole and then he changed his name to his real name eventually. Uh-huh. And yeah. he's in those pictures, too. Right. And, so, you know, a kid from Brooklyn who would come by at weird times and yeah. smoke cigarettes. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm, sure I'm remembering the pictures now also. There's one of him. Yeah. He's, you can see. He's the one. That, there, there's one of him with construction workers oh, looking I out the window. Yeah, they, yeah, there's that. And there's a picture of him as dressed as an army guy, you know. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. And he's been a... Yeah. Oh, it's too bad people can't... They're listening won't be able to... Yeah, anyway. And no. But it isn't... That's Christian bottom right over there? 
I can't tell. Down there? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, the, the one smoking the cigarette. Yeah. yeah, by that, yeah, that drawing of Skeet Ulrich there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got to do that movie as good as it gets. I got to be an advisor on that movie. The Jack Nicholson? Yeah. Huh. Uh-huh. You were an advisor on that movie? Uh-huh. Greg Kinnear on <laughs> How to Be a Gay Artist. Uh-huh. <laughs> How did you advise that? What you... <laughs> Ivy Crudson had the job and she got me to do it when the, um, oh God, <laughs> oh, wait, wait a minute. It's, it's a funny, what's Semmel's first name? The artist Semmel. <laughs> Joan Semmel had the job, but she wouldn't listen. She only would do what she wanted to do. She's this beautiful painter who paints nude, nude women and stuff. Oh, yeah. And so she had the job and then, but she wouldn't do what they wanted. And then so... Ivy asked me if I would do it, and I was going to have a show in L.A. around the same time, so I said, sure. And uh, and then so I got to, you know, hang out. Skeet Ulrich came here, and he, he got to be a hustler, you know, and hang out and do all the things hustlers do. Yeah. And I got to take pictures and make drawings. Uh-huh. And then... And I did, and then I had to supposedly do pictures of Helen Hunt naked, <laughs> and so I got somebody else to do it because she wouldn't do it. And then she, she and she had okay the pictures because uh, she, she had rights to what she would what, what I could use, and she didn't. Uh, my pictures were too risque of her <laughs> naked or some shit. Anyway, I need so, to rewatch that now. I'm curious. Well, yeah, and then. Uh, and then, you know, and Jack Nicholson was hysterical. You know, he said some really crazy stuff. First time I ever heard a fudge packer came out of Jack Nicholson's mouth. Really? Yeah. Oh, he gave you a fudge, he gave a fudge packer? No, he gave, it was part of what he was saying to Greg Kinnear. Right. He was a fudge packer. I don't know if it ever got into the movie. Right. But it was the first time I heard it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bit of a cliche um, uh, painting question. How do you know when a painting is done? <laughs> sometimes I don't. <laughs> sometimes you can overwork a painting. Sometimes you just know it's done. Sometimes it's easy. Yeah. Like the one with the tulips was like really fast and easy. And I like it the most because it's so easy. How do you decide on whether you're going to go pastel or painting? Pastel is is something that I've always, it's, it's an easier thing for me because it relates to a mark. And, uh, and, and my hand is really quick with marks. And the, the painting came later to me than the, than the drawing. The drawing was first. And uh, Joan Mitchell mentioned to me that, you know, she liked my marks. She would, she would mention it. And, uh, and so, um, I thought I was happier when I was making pastels, but then I wanted to spend more time making something. So then I started making paintings. And um, and I don't have a system. It's every time I do it, it's like I go, I go from scratch. I don't have mm-hmm. methods. I got to remember, oh, you mix those two things together with that. And, and it's like new all the time. Yeah. But so I'm not really answering your question. Though. No, I mean, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I and mean, the paintings, the paintings take longer. And, and sometimes I like the paintings when they look more like drawings. This one is so beautiful. This one. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's so right. striking. Thank you. That red feels like a Matisse red. Yeah, it is. I mean, but yeah. I didn't know that. But yeah, th- there's that. And then the whites like Bernard. But I mean, but that's, but those are the people I look at all the time. You know, I've always looked at like Bernard and Bernard was always sneaking, sneaking people into the corners of his paintings, like to be a, a mistress or a wife uh-huh. or, or a, a dog in the paint. You know, there'd be these little clues about what was going on in those paintings. Yeah. And it's. Is there any photo um, photography to go back to over and over? Photography, um, well, you know, that Peter Ujar was the one who I always liked from my time period. Nan Golden's, you know, I've always loved her photography. We're talking about contemporary. Yeah. David Armstrong, I always thought was brilliant. Yeah. Did you know Peter? Peter did this thing for John Kloss. And so he had the cover of, I was on the cover of New York, the first edition of New York Magazine. What year was that? The first edition of New York Magazine is enough information. It was early on. <laughs> it was the beginning of it. You don't like the picture? No, I love the picture. Yeah. I made a drawing of the picture. Okay, okay, okay. My Amy, my first, my wife, my only wife, yeah. had the photograph that Peter gave her. Okay. It was like a great photograph. And my eyebrows met in the middle in those days. And, <laughs> but anyways, I was in a Barbara Gladstone drawing show this year. Uh-huh. And that drawing is in it, and I made oh, yeah. a drawing of now. Oh, amazing. But the photograph's much better than... The photograph's brilliant. I mean, it's just... So he was taking pictures of me and this girl, Lynn Rayner, and we were in some apartment huh. on Lower Fifth Avenue, between low, uh, 12th Street, between 5th and 6th. You remember the shoot? Of course I do, because yeah. I was also... I was, in, I was at the School of Visual Arts... And I was sort of learning how to meditate with this teacher who was trying to, um, who was feeding me microbiotic food. Uh-huh. And uh, we also managed to sleep together. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's, that's when all that stuff was normal. Uh-huh. And, then, and then, so he must have mentioned something to Peter because he was a friend of Peter's. And uh-huh. so then Peter and I became friends. And then I knew Peter from the bar bar and other places and just hanging out. Right. I keep on hearing about the bar. That was the, that was one of the spots. Yeah. That's that fabulous. S- second and second. Yeah. It would be on my way home from Klaus's. Uh huh. You know, I was like, I didn't always sleep there every night. Sometimes I'd come home and I'd hit the bar. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. a real party boy. I see. Well, well I was young. Yeah. <laughs> The bar, yeah, I keep on trying to imagine yeah, no, what the bar I mean, was like. I'd see Cookie there, Gary Indiana. It was like, you know, like you'd go there, you'd have, you know, and you'd have more to drink than you ever needed, and you'd wind <laughs> up with I don't know what, but you would. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and then, you know. Yeah. How do you feel about what it's become over here, like on the Bowery? Well, let's hope it comes back to it, because I hated it, but now I miss it. You hated it when it was like what it was. No, I loved it when it was just funny little stores that sell restaurant equipment and artists living up above and bums. And then it became fancy and all this stuff went on, you know, and then people moved in and it changed. Yeah. But now now I miss it. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's all fine. Well, it's pretty amazing in here. It's pretty amazing in well, here. Well, this is what a lot you know, the key used to throw out the window in a sock. Say that again? Used to throw the key out the window in a sock. In a sock so it wouldn't go down the drain. They could ring a bell, uh, but there was no... It didn't open a door. They'd, you had a buzzer, and people would know to ring the buzzer. Yeah. And then you would throw the key out the window. Right. In a sock. <laughs> but that's the way it was. That was my conversation with Billy Sullivan that we recorded in New York. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Ellen Payne-Smith. Original music for the show by Adam Feingold. Special thanks to Anthony Kudahi for putting me in touch with Billy. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourphoto.org and check out our new books by Ian Lewandowski and Linda Rosenkrantz, which are available for pre-order now and coming this fall. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.